Welcome back. We hope you've been behaving yourself. This is Mary Lewis. And this is Jackie Noto. Welcome to Behave Yourself, a podcast on BA without the BS. Mary, what is your beverageino of the week? From flat soda to frappe, how are you feeling? My beverageino of the week is honoring my inner child and also throwing in some professionalism in there. We have a key lime pie bubbly drink. So professionalism is the fact that, you know, carbonated beverage, very fancy. But as a child, if anyone else had the Yoplait yogurt key lime pie flavor, it was my literal favorite. It's amazing. This drink, I don't know how to describe it because it's not sweet, but it has this like little twang that is the exact replica of the Yoplait yogurt. And that's why I love it so much, like legitimately, like most carbonated water, I would argue is like, you can kind of taste the flavor, but it's, it's not like very potent. It's just like, okay, it's there. No, this, there's like one ingredient. I can't tell what it is, but it's like, as soon as you're like, oh, 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 key lime pie. Um, so that's how we're feeling a mixture of catering towards my younger self and loving her while also, you know, adulting at life and professionalism, girl boss. And you're spot on that key lime Yoplait yogurt was fire. Easily one of the best, best flavors. I'm glad I'm not alone. Yeah, no, that one. And then when I was a kid too, the flip yogurts where you could add in like Oreo. Oh, yes. <laughs> the chocolate chips. But yeah, the flips with the Oreo, the chocolate chips, graham crackers were so yummy. Delicious. I almost missed you. Professor Noto, what is your beverage you know of your week? How's it going with you? Are you going to call me Professor from now on? Yeah, because I don't want to call you by a name you're not, that's, you don't want to be called. And I keep trying to say it. Miss Jackie. So my beverageino of the week, I have quite a bit going on. So I've been working on refining a grant and my brother is getting married this summer. So this upcoming weekend, I'm going to be out of town for a wedding shower. I've been helping out with that but also been cleaning my place, organizing for the dog sitter who's going to come and watch Hercules. So I've been, I've been tired, but busy this week. So my drink is going to be a tired, but busy drink. So I love, if you haven't picked it up at this point, I don't know how I like the combination of peppermint and chocolate. Who doesn't? So, yeah, exactly. Who doesn't? So my choice drink for this week is going to be a hot chocolate with peppermint in it. So like adding in Andy's mints, adding in some form of mint chocolate, and then I'm going to put whipped cream on top of it so that my drink is a cozy, tired drink, but it's busy too. And that's exactly how I'm feeling this week. I'm tired, but I'm getting stuff done. I'm cranking out tasks. So I'm a little little zoned out, but I've been efficient. So I'm tired and busy. And we love supporting the fact that two emotions can be occurring at the exact same time. And that's totally okay. So you can be a busy, busy bee, but also take some comfy, cozy time. The, the reality of adulthood. Yes. Realizing that no one's got it together. We're all just trying our bestest each day. And that's that on imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our episode for today. Thank you so much. We'll see you next. 
kidding. We're kidding. Oh, JK, JK. Wait, have you seen that meme? It's so funny. Or no, it's in a movie. It's in, oh my gosh, it's a new girl. She says, she's a comedian in real life, I think. And she says, JK, JK, totally kidding. And it's so I thought you were going to pull in Courtney Kardashian where she just goes A B C D E F G. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, Court. Uh, let's move on to Rex. We have some Rex to share with you guys. Marigold, what is your recommendation of the week? I have a good one. I've been taking an ACT certification course because your girly wants to be an OBMer with ACT experience. Because we appreciate values in personal and professional lives. And something that they were talking about that really stuck with me. I was like, oh, this is feasible and tangible. Something I can actually implement into my decision making. Is when you're making choices. Instead of trying to like predict what the best choice is. Or like making, you know, the most perfect decision and then being upset. Thinking about if the choice that you're about to make is going to move you closer to your values or farther away. And that's it. So it's like taking away the good or bad. But in order to do that, you have to have identified what your values are. And for me, that's something that I'm currently working through. So being able to already have those pre-identified values and then making decisions just in terms of life, like, you know, how much time I want to spend on my schoolwork, how often I want to take my dogs for a walk, when I want to take them on an adventure, how often I want to grocery shop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these things. If I think about it from that perspective, it makes it feel a lot more like optimistic and less like decision fatigue. I like that. I think that's a great recommendation. What is your recommendation for this week? We're kind of in a similar path here. So my recommendation for this week is to ensure that we are programming reinforcement for our goals. Mm -hmm. When we're working with our clients, whether that be in the autism sector, whether we're working with students, whether we're working with elderly adults, they get reinforcement when they engage in the behavior they're supposed to. But when it comes to us in applying behavior analytic principles to our own goals, our own behaviors, there seems to be some sort of a disconnect. Like I should be able to do this without reinforcement because X, Y, Z. But in reality, those basic principles of behavior analysis, functions of reinforcement carry across all populations. So when we are trying to do a behavior change, when we are trying to increase or maintain our behavior, programming reinforcement can be helpful. Maybe it's not something you need forever, but when you're first starting off, having reinforcement is great. So what I've been doing, I wanted to increase my writing behaviors. So I decided that my reinforcement would be movies. So I love superhero films. I'm going to want to see all of them. And as some of you may know, superhero films come out in the summer. So there's going, there's already been Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. There's been uh, the Spider-Verse. I'm sure there's going to be more coming. But what I'm doing is I'm programming those movies as reinforcement. So if I can do a certain amount of hours of writing that is equal to or more than the movie, I'm now able to go see the movie without sitting there and thinking of how I could be better spending the time or spending my money on this because it's my programmed reinforcement for my writing. 
And this can obviously be different reinforcements, different people, but having some aspect of reinforcement for the behaviors you want to see is helpful because you are not different than any other population. You don't have different standards, different sets of functions than everyone else we work with. So don't assume that you can do anything without using those same behavior analytic principles that we'd use to encourage success with our own clientele. And for some reason, I have a pattern of behavior of not implementing reinforcers. And because we're talking about imposter syndrome today, I'm guessing that I'm probably not alone. You know, prior, if we weren't on this subject, I'd be like, I'm probably the only person ever that doesn't actually try to apply behavior analytic principles into my own personal life. No, I think it's pretty common. It's just like, oh, we almost think we can outsmart the system or we don't need it or we don't deserve it. And that's not true at all. Or we think we have to do it perfectly because we understand the science so well. For example, last week, I really wanted to try out this new cute Amazon bodysuit for workout athleisure. And I was like, okay, well, one of my goals is to be walking my pups on a daily basis. And I usually walk them in the evening. And sometimes, you know, I go to bed really early. Sometimes I'm like, I don't have the energy. And then I don't, I feel really guilty. I'm like, okay, I can walk the pups if I walk them every day. I think I said four out of five days, Monday through Friday, that I'll order the workout set. And I had a little impulse control issue and I ordered it on like Wednesday and I hadn't finished the week and I was beating myself up about it. And then I was like, it doesn't even get delivered until Friday, which is technically the day that I'm supposed to access the reinforcer. So I was like, that's okay. I missed one day. I did four out of five days. And then I got the reinforcer. I'm actually wearing it right now. I know you guys can't see it, but I love it. I'm obsessed with it. So the way we're implementing these, like setting reinforcer The way we're implementing reinforcement and tying them to our goals, it doesn't have to be perfect, even though we know like, oh, the magnitude has to be this and it has to be at this time. It has to be immediate. Life is life. It's okay. You can still practice it. And just as you would be flexible with your client, be flexible with yourself. Amen. So Mary, you've already dove into it a little bit, but what topic are we spilling tea on today? Today, we are going to be pouring the hot tea completely out. We're just going to yeet it, which is imposter syndrome. So starting us off here, what is imposter syndrome? All right. I'm going to give anyone who's listening. P.S. Thanks for listening. I'm going to give you guys my own thought definition. I'm not even going to look at this beautifully crafted definition that Jackie has prepared for us because she's going to walk you through it. So when I think about imposter syndrome, it's pretty much feeling as if you know nothing, but more importantly, feeling as if everyone else around you knows everything. And so when you're asking a question, when you're presenting on something that you're a subject matter expert at, or when you're seeking resources, if you're coming from that perspective, you're automatically going to be, you know, lacking self-confidence and feeling as if you are so much less equipped than everyone else when the reality is that you could be just as or even more, which would argue, I would argue is most of the time, even more equipped than the people that you're surrounded by. All right, Jackie, yeah, def- take, take it away with a technical, more, uh, you know, succinct definition. I mean, Mary really hit on it here. A big part of it is that it's a fallacy. Yeah. So we perceive that we're not doing well, that we're not having success. 
even though objectively you are performing, you are probably a high-end performer, but there's some feeling of fraud or a phony. So when I entered the PhD program, we had a group chat and I titled that group chat, pretending to know things. Mm-hmm. Because a big feeling I had when I was trans when I was in the master's program, when I was transitioning in the PhD, as I was getting my PhD, was that I had just somehow duped the system. I was able to fake that I had belonged for such a long period of time. I actually didn't know anything and that I was just able to trick everyone into thinking I belonged here when I didn't. So I titled that chat pretending to know things because that's exactly how I felt. It felt like I was just putting on this facade for everyone else that I knew all these things and I was good at these things, but in reality, I wasn't. And that's the first time I noticed that I wasn't the only person who felt those feelings. All the other students who were in that chat started being like, oh my gosh, who made up this title? That's so funny. That's exactly how it feels. So it was my first experiencing realizing that I wasn't the only person who felt like they were faking their way through it. And the reality is I wasn't in my master's program. I had, I was working 60 hours a week. I had three different jobs in the realm of behavior analysis. I was passing all my classes. My clients loved me. We were getting effective results. I was doing system changes. Like I was not failing. I knew things, but it felt like I didn't. So imposter syndrome can look some different ways, but it can, some of the main categories it ends up being lumped into are feelings of perfectionism, people pleasing, feeling paralysis in the work that you do because you don't feel it's going to be good enough, which also loops back into that perfectionism Mm -hmm. and then procrastination, because if I can't do it perfectly, I'm just not going to do it at all. Yeah, select all. That's me. Check, 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 check. It's crazy though, PhD dupe. It's like a PhD dupe. That's such a good way to describe it. I literally, I have a little TikTok where I self-monitor. It's not little, sorry, I'm not quantifying. I make TikToks where I self-monitor my dissertation writing and funded hour writing. And I literally one day was in such a paralysis in a state of perfectionism for writing that I said, okay, I'm just going to pretend and I'm going to dress up like a PhD student, even though I am literally a PhD student. I'm a PhD candidate. I'm not just a student. And I was like, I'm going to dress up. I'm going to pretend to be a PhD candidate. And I got super cute business professional. I went to an office space and I cranked out like three pages. I, I had a writing block. So it's like, I had a lot to say. It wasn't like, oh, I can write three pages so easily. It's don't, don't feel imposter syndrome about that. But it worked. It was so effective. And I was like, this is, it feels so strange, but that's what it feels like. I was like, PhD dupe. I'm not supposed to be here. No, you are supposed to be here. And I think that's where a big part of this is rooted, is that imposter syndrome is something that typically you feel it, you feel you're alone in feeling it. But in reality, it's pretty prevalent, especially in women, in people of color, and in members of the LGBT community. So in a recent poll from Advancing the Future of Women in Business, a Women's Leadership Summit report, they looked at 750 high-performing executive women and asked them questions on imposter syndrome. 
75% of those women reported feeling imposter syndrome at some point in their career. That's insanity to me. I know. 85% believe imposter syndrome is commonly experienced by women in America. 74% of women believe that their male counterparts do not experience feelings of self-doubt as much as women do. And 81% believe they put more pressure on themselves not to fail than men do. So even for women who are in these huge, powerful positions, they still exemplify symptoms of imposter syndrome. Why is that? Well, breaking news. The world that we're a part of was not built for women, was not built for people of color, was not built for the LGBT community. So we have these feelings of imposter syndrome, and that's because in reality, we were never supposed to be here. Yeah. Even in the realm of behavior analysis, it's predominantly run by women. We have a lot of women. You still see a lot of men in positions of power. And in the realm of psychology, that used to be a heavily male-driven field. The reason why it's a woman-driven field now is because women started putting themselves into those spheres. So when we're thinking of imposter syndrome here, in reality, we're trying to break through and break down systems that never expected us to be there in the first place. These systems, these practices weren't set up for anyone who wasn't a white male to succeed. So when we are thinking about imposter syndrome, yes, we can think of some ways to mitigate it in ourselves. And Mary and I are going to give you some of our tips, tools, techniques to help mitigate that feeling of imposter syndrome. But in reality here, it needs to be a culture change. Mm -hmm. There's a need to step up. They need to address systems that have biases, that have uh, biases pertaining to gender, to race, to ethnicity, to different religious backgrounds, to different gender or sexual orientations. And that's the real change that will affect imposter syndrome on the wide scale. Yeah. And it's very similar to, you know, BCBAs and RBTs experiencing this widespread burnout. Yes, we have tools at the performer individual level that we can share. And luckily people are sharing them, but there needs to be change at the organizational level and at the systems level in order for us to move forward in good conscience. You know, like, yeah, we have tips and things that we can show you and tell you about that can help with your imposter syndrome. But at the end of the day, we we still need to be making that culture change as well. And that's why we're talking about this on our podcast today, because I would argue one of the biggest strengths of imposter syndrome or how it like grows, I'm imagining it being like a big giant green monster is not telling anybody about it or mm-hmm. not at, not sharing that you're feeling that way, not asking anyone. I think that that is when it has the most power. So we're really trying to annihilate that power by sharing and talking about how we experience imposter syndrome on a very regular basis, even though we both, I would argue, regularly educate ourselves on how to combat those feelings. And it's hard. It's hard feeling that you don't belong. It's hard feeling that you're not enough. And talking with people about those feelings, not only is going to be helpful for your mental health in general, Mm -hmm. but will make you realize you're not alone. And I completely agree with you, Mary. A big part that like fuels the imposter syndrome monster is that it's just you. 
everyone else has everything together. All their ducks are in a row. They're excelling at everything they're doing. They feel like they belong, but that's not the reality. So starting by having conversations with people that support you and care about you and talking about hard topics like this is going to be helpful because just like something like depression, anxiety, you're not alone. You're not the only person that experiences it now or has ever experienced it. And we can come together and be supportive of one another and figure out how we can move forward. But it does feel that way, I think, a lot of times, which is, again, why we're talking about it. I have experienced what some people would refer to as good old boys club or just being isolated, like where there's a group of people that seemingly through their overt behavior seem to know more than you, seem to have some sort of like in and are a group in themselves and are not necessarily super welcoming and supportive towards others and are extremely supportive and welcoming towards the people in the group. And the entire time I was experiencing that environment, I never, I never once thought to myself that that's what it was. It was afterward talking to other people that, that were in my same environment and kind of comparing our thoughts and feelings and then saying, wait, why did they get that? Or like, wait, how do they know that information? Like what? Like I didn't receive that and putting the pieces together. So on paper, I guarantee if like you ask your friend to look at your resume or look at whatever type of skills you have or just know you as a person, they would say there's no reason you should be feeling this imposter syndrome. Like you meet all the qualifications. And even if you don't, you have all these other skills or you have this experience, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're in it, it's very much like you're in a fishbowl. You're like, why is this happening? And so I think also being aware Like, I didn't even know boys club was a saying when I was going through this. This was a few years ago. I didn't know that was a saying. I didn't know that was real. And then afterward, I found out about it. And I was like, oh, wait, (laughs) this is like a common thing. Like, what the heck? So that's another thing, even though it seems like, you know, we're talking about this, like, it's so obvious. We we also like, it's really hard to see it in the moment, which is, again, why we're chatting about it, because we don't want you to feel that way. Yeah, it's always hard when you have these feelings of lessness mm-hmm. and that's hard to work through, but mm-hmm. realizing that it's not you who is less, it is a system that was not created for you to be more. Mm-hmm. And a big way systemically we can work to change that is having people in positions of power who are different than your typical cis white male, Mm -hmm. right? If we have black professors, that's showing that black students are a welcomed part of our field. Right now, our percentage rate of black technicians is about 4%. Mm -hmm. If we have professors or researchers or clinical directors who are LGBTQ+, once again, we're stating that look, here's someone who is like you, who has been able to be successful, who's able to move forward, who's able to be a prominent part of this field. So having models of individuals who are similar to the students that are coming in and displaying that you do belong here. This is a place where we want you and we want you to succeed. We want you to thrive. Once again, for imposter syndrome to go away, biases in our systems need to go away. So this is once again, a big change that we're talking about. It's likely going to take some time, but in the meantime, in between time, we're going to give you some tips, some tools, some tricks on how we work to mitigate imposter syndrome when it comes up for us. 
A thing that works for me a lot, and I share this with students, is the way that imposter syndrome comes to me is this voice in my head, forgive the mentalisms here, but I have a narrating mind. So I talk through my day every day internally. Which I do not. And I recently learned that that's not normal. So if you're like me and you don't have an internal dialogue, it's okay. We can talk about it. Don't have imposter syndrome. Yeah. So I do have that internal dialogue. Sometimes she helps me out. We're continually thinking of solutions, brainstorming, but sometimes she is just not my friend. And imposter syndrome comes in through a voice, right? And you hear, you're not good enough. You couldn't possibly do this. And something I tell myself and I tell my students is you have to shut that voice down. The way I typically voice it is, so I'm going to use Mary as my hypothetical example here, but I know Mary. Mary is really nice. Mary wouldn't talk to any of her friends that way. So Mary's not going to talk about herself that way because that's not Mary. Hitting me where it hurts. (laughs) What helps me is separating the voice in my head from myself because I am not someone who would speak to someone that meanly, that harshly, that crudely. So having some form of separation of those thoughts from who I am as a person has been helpful because then I just tell that voice to shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. I am X, Y, Z. Here's ways I am successful. Here's ways that I am valued. Here's ways that I can succeed. And that helps to shut that down and not take those thoughts as part of you. Mm -hmm. Our thoughts aren't who we are. Our behaviors are who we are. Like how you said, talking about the almost logical or like the facts Let's get the facts straight. I'm in a PhD program, okay? We're here. Can't go back. I, I really like that. I think that kind of you takes obviously out- obviously got here for a reason. Right. I think it takes out the uh, some of the emotional responding maybe that can be paired with feeling that way. It's like, well, these are the facts. Might as well roll with them. My biggest imposter syndrome moments, which is, it's all connected. I think it's related to people pleasing. I, in fact, I know it is. But it's with um, asking questions. So routinely, whether it's like a group, individual, one-on-one, or a class, some type of structure where you have to ask questions in a public setting, or even like one-on-one, like, you know, talking to my advisor, asking a question, I always am like, I should know this info. And then, you know how I know it's imposter syndrome? Because somebody else asks a question, please forgive me, and just like, this is going to sound a little rude. Somebody else asks a question, and I'm like, it's in the instructions or it's like, I know, or like, I know the answer. I'm like, oh, that's blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, Mary, if they're allowed to ask that question and rightfully so they're allowed to ask it, they don't know. I'm allowed to ask my question and it's okay. It's fine. Even if somebody, the person sitting next to me knows the answer and they're thinking in their head, which they're probably not because nobody's thinking about you. Like, I can't believe she asked that. It's right there. It's like, they're not, first of all, they're not. But second of all, even if they are, who freaking cares? We we don't care. And a life lesson on this question asking front that I learned from Dr. Nick Weatherly, he told me this maybe my second semester in my master's program, and I've lived by it and I preach it to my students, is this. There is no such thing as a bad question. The only bad question is an unasked question. Yeah. Because if you're having the question, 
someone else probably is too. Yes. If you need clarification, if you don't fully understand something, asking a question, one is showing that you're engaging in the material, that you're working on your comprehension and you're trying to bring points together. So as an instructor, when students ask me, not questions regarding like instructions for an in-class activity, but questions about the material where they're trying to connect points together. I love it because it's showing me that you're actively engaging and working to figure out this information. Yeah. It's not what's being asked. It's the fact that you're asking it, you know, you're contributing to the conversation. There's another, there's a TikTok I saw and something that helps. So like my, that's how I experience imposter syndrome. Most of the time is being afraid to ask questions. Something that helps is asking the question, but seemingly sounding super confident, even if you're not. And one way that I can practice that based on like how I speak is not going up at the end. So being like, or you don't even have to say the word question being like, I'm curious about something instead of being like, I'm curious about something. I have a question. I want to know more about this, you know, kind of like, okay. It's like, I want to know more about this. Can you tell me how this works? Because even if in your head, you're experiencing those private events of feeling like you should already know the answer when you present it in that way, you're automatically, you know, you're almost like fighting with yourself being like, no, like you have the right to ask this question. You are a professional researcher or practitioner and you want to know more because you're awesome at your job. I'm going to go on two different soapboxes here. My first soapbox. One aspect of leadership is being able to admit when you don't know something. And I think that's something we forget about a lot when we're in that student realm, when we're in the lower power dynamic in our clinic, in our organization. Mm -hmm is feeling like we have to know everything. But the reality is, is being able to identify when you don't know something is a really good skill to have. Yes, if everyone, this isn't my thought, but I was listening to a podcast, some form of media. They were saying, if I'm talking to someone and they know everything, that's an immediate red flag to me. Yes, absolutely, immediate red flag. Other soapbox, which is carrying into Mary's tonation aspect, how we lift at the end, mm-hmm. is having confidence even when you don't know something. So you can answer something or ask something and still be confident in who you are as a person, even That's if you're not one. familiar with that material. So here's just a personal example of my imposter syndrome. And this happened when I was in undergrad. Whenever I would answer a question posited to the class, I would give this whole answer with backup information with why I'm giving this answer. And then I would end it at the finality and go, but I don't know. So I'd give this whole well thought out answer and then end it with, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you what, (laughs) that behavior got punished and I'm so grateful it did. So one day in class, this is my senior year of college. I had been with this professor for multiple classes before. We were at a private university, smaller. So a lot of the students in the class are people that I'd known in my personal life I'd had in classes before. So once again, I engage in this behavior of fully walking out my answer for this question, why I answered it this way, my backup information for it. And then I ended with, I don't know. My instructor at that moment paused class. And she went, okay, we're going to do something real quick. 
And Mary's heard this story before. So my apologies, Mary, but for everyone else. Oh, it's a great story. We're going to do something real quick. I need everyone in class to raise their hand. If you can recall an instance in which Jackie said something that was stupid or didn't make sense or that she was wrong. And no one raised their hand. At that moment, she turned to me and she said, all of these other people think that you're smart and they believe in you. Why don't you? And for me, that was my first huge click of how deep that feeling I had was where I'm surrounded by my peers, my professor. They all agreed that I knew what I was talking about, that I was competent, that I could explain this information. Yet every single time I said something, I ended with, but I don't know. So that was a great little pivot point for me to realize that I need to have confidence in the information that I'm putting forth and not undermine myself in what I'm saying. And the same goes with a question. If you've been able to identify that you don't know something, you don't have to undermine your want to fill that gap. That's a beneficial skill. And I, that's so funny you bring that up because I used to do that all the time. I also used to do it in class with um, talking about like philosophical discussions and having to do it so often. So that class was pretty much like all discussion based every week. We would have to share our own personal opinions. Like we've already established that um, we're not going to necessarily be correct. Like we weren't striving for the right answer. And I would say, blip, dip, 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 dip. And I think Skinner meant this when he was talking about the whatever animal, beaver, whatever he was talking about, blah, 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 blah. But I don't know. Or like saying a controversial thing and saying, but I don't know. And after doing that, like five times in class, you're like, this is cringe. So then you just leave off the, I don't know. We already know that we're in a philosophical discussion. No big deal. So having confidence in ourselves shutting down that internal monologue if you have one do you have other ways that you combat imposter syndrome mary um talking i feel like this is pretty clear but talking about it with other people um especially that we're in like the same meeting the same class the same program as you is extremely helpful i meet um about once a month with some other phd students and other programs and it's really helpful talking to them hearing about some of their um, their wins and then other times if they talk about imposter syndrome or things they're struggling with, I'm like, wow, I'm not the only one. Um, but I'm trying to think if there's something else that I do because I've, I've definitely gotten better at it, which I'm really proud of myself for. No, I think that's pretty much it. I think another big thing that's helped me with imposter syndrome, which I know this is going to be hard, especially if you're like me at all. If you've gone to a master's program, if you've gone to a PhD program, if you're someone who's a BCBA, you've likely excelled most of your life. Most people don't get to the point where they're in some of these classes. So at least in my own anecdotal experience, I've been someone who's been able to excel most of my life. I'm used to being the person who is doing it the best. So it has to be perfect because everyone has this standard of me where it has to go above and beyond. And it has to be this great new revelation for the field. So something that's helped me a lot with this quote unquote imposter syndrome is giving myself a break, letting go of that perfectionist idealism. 
It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be the top tier paper that's come out in the last 10 decades. It doesn't have to be proposing these brand new ideas that no one's ever done research on before. It just needs to be giving yourself a little bit of grace there and allowing yourself to engage in behaviors and not having that perfection criterion put upon yourself, I found has been helpful in getting myself to engage in the behaviors that I was worried about. Because when you have that fear of failure, it's hard for you to get started. So I like to think of um, from Encanto, Isabella's song. I always share it with my students in some of my classes, but a phrase in it is, I want to do something unexpected, something fresh, something new. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it's mine. What else can I do? So not expecting you to be all the way at 100% or arguably 150% all of the time. Let that go. Do the best that you can do. It doesn't need to be the best document that's come into their office in the last 12 years. It's just not realistic. It's not a realistic expectation of yourself. Couldn't have said it better myself, Jackie. My other ones that uh, have been helpful, one, we should celebrate our successes. So Mm -hmm. having some sort of tact of this is a way that I was successful. This is a way that I am competent is super helpful. And maybe even keeping a list of all the successes that you've had, sharing those successes with your friends, sharing your failures with your friends so that they're Mm -hmm. aware that you're struggling too. Whenever we only share our successes, it makes it seem like everyone else has everything together. Everything is perfect, but that's not the reality for most people. And that's so funny. I forgot I did this or didn't do and now will do in celebrating your successes. When I graduated from the master's program, it was during COVID. So we didn't have a ceremony. We didn't walk. And I didn't really think that mattered at the time, but my my past history of like education is going from like thinking I was not smart at all to realizing that I did have the potential to, you know, really learn and like, you know, be educated. And now I'm here and I'm really happy about it. Yada, yada, yada. We don't need to go through that right now. So that actually was, I mean, it's a, it's a huge moment for anyone, even if you're genius, like it's incredible, but I kind of just brushed it off. Like, okay, who cares? Whatever. It's fine. Especially because I was rolling into the PhD program. No, you got into the PhD program. That's incredible. So for things that seem minor, really trying to celebrate them similar to the kind of like birthdays, um, or anniversaries or whatever, but, you know, making it, submitting a grant, like defending your comps, finishing your hours on time, like even if it seems, um, or even if nobody else really celebrates that, doing something that's really preferred for you. So for me, that would be like having um, people over to my house and, you know, making a vision board or going out to a restaurant with friends. And we don't have to talk about it like, oh, I passed my comps, whatever. Or like, oh, I submitted this grant, cool. But it's just being in community with people and reminding yourself of the moment. Like we are celebrating because I did this and that matters. So that's another thing that um, I'm starting to do now and I forgot. So thank you for sharing that. That's another really good one. Yeah, having that system of support we've talked about before, we're going to keep talking about it. It's beneficial being able to share your feelings, your successes, your failures. But then also that system of support allows you to collaborate. So if I'm having a difficult issue, I'm working on facing, i not engaging in behaviors I should be, I can reach out to Mary. I can ask her, what do you think? would be beneficial for me moving forward here. And 
I'll be open. I've done that before. We've had these conversations before and just having someone else to bounce your ideas off of, but also to bounce those insecurities off of. If I were to come into Mary, which this is something that I have done before, I had a bit of imposter syndrome in the first half of my PhD here. I shared with her, you know, I don't really know if I should be a PhD student. I don't know if this is the right place for me. And by vocalizing those feelings, I get to have that support from Mary and saying, what are you talking about? You yeah. should absolutely be here. Look at the successes that you've had. Look at the ways you've set up students for success. Mm -hmm. Look at the changes you want to do in the field. You are someone who should be in this program. So having that, once again, the open culture of communication is great. And that doesn't just have to be when you're doing great. It can be when you're struggling too. That's a good one. LOL, how I'm Jackie. I wrote an entire grant, didn't think it would be good enough to be done. So I didn't submit it to my advisor for months. And then I realized <laughs> it was pretty much ready to go. Yep. <laughs> I'm Classic. I'm getting that. But it's such a good example. It's such a good example. Like it's so important to have friends to support you so they can actually hear your rationale and be like, yo, you just did all this work. Like, why do you think you aren't ready to move forward? Having more voices to counter out that inner monologue, you know. Get that out of there. Or if you don't have one, <laughs> and you're already winning. Yeah. Are, is there anything else that we want to share about our impostious neurum? I don't really think so right now. I'm trying to think of like other quick examples of imposter syndrome that I've faced. Because I feel we've only covered maybe one or two. So having it in a different scope might be helpful. Um, I've had it with compensation. Um, I had to give a price and to to do contract work. And I had no idea. I had never done it before. Contract work. And um, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to undervalue myself, but I also didn't want to overvalue what I was presenting and then have them say, oh, just kidding. We're not interested. So I asked people in the field. Um, I think I asked like four different people. I got, I also asked um, James who he's a BCBA, but also he's like, it's a different, it's a different sector. You know, he's more clinical. I'm more OBM. Um, and they all gave me different answers, which I thought was helpful. But the biggest thing that I took away from it was think about how much time like literal like hours and minutes that you would have to spend on whatever they're asking you to do. And then think about the skills that you already have. And those are, those are your value. And then, you know, ask for a price based on that. You're having to use these skills that you, you know, pay thousands of dollars to acquire. And then how much time are you getting put into it? And that made me, helped me come up with a number. Honestly, I still felt like it was kind of arbitrary, but I just went for it. I felt like it was a little higher then like I was scared. I was like, is this too high? And I would argue that that's probably the right number. And they said, yes. So I think that's a good example of imposter syndrome being conquered. Um, yeah. Not only did you ask people questions, you didn't know the answer to, you set a boundary, you stuck to it and it worked. Yeah. So another way that I've experienced imposter syndrome before, I've seen it in my vocal verbal behavior when it comes to presentations. So when I first started presenting, I'm much better now, no worries, but I realized that I would speed through background information. 
and I was talking really fast. As you can tell from this podcast on average, I'm someone who talks at a faster rate of speaking. But when I was presenting, I was going at lightning speed. So Mm -hmm. I decided to take a step back and look at what the function of that speeding behavior was. Yeah. And I realized the reason why I was speeding through so much of that background information, so much of those definitions, the connection pieces was because I wanted to get to the point I was making and I wanted to cover all this information so I could get to this final statement so that people would realize I knew what I was talking about. So I was speeding through all of this material because I wanted to get to this point that brought it all together so that people would realize I wasn't stupid and I knew what I was saying. But in speeding through all of that information, I wasn't providing helpful background for people who maybe didn't have the experience or the research background that I did in this topic. So it was something that I was doing because I felt like people would think that I was dumb or that I shouldn't be up on the podium or that I didn't belong. But in reality, me speeding through that content was doing a disservice to the audience. Yeah. And to just as a testament to further squish any imposter syndrome you might be facing, Jackie, in the years that I've known you, I cannot remember you ever speeding through a presentation. So I don't know when that started for you, like when that awareness and transition. But I think I think I've known you for has it been four years? I think five, five. So for five years, I have never, and I've listened to you give countless presentations because you're literally a professor, um, basically like everything. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard, haven't heard that at all. Yeah. Thankfully it's not something I do too much anymore. I'm much more confident myself in the material that I'm putting forth, but I think it was my first talk at FABA. I pretty much blacked out the entire time and not have told you a single single thing and then I was like wow I was talking so fast and I couldn't remember like anyone's faces the content I was doing all I could remember is I was talking fast and I was like you didn't even enjoy this experience you had because you were so worried that everyone was going to think you were stupid so right after that I was like time to switch Mine was so bad. My first Baba presentation, I thought I had this really cool metaphor of Starbucks drinks. It was not good, but it was on. It was so, it's funny. Um, But that was on the last day of a conference at like 5 p.m. Another thing is if you're presenting as a student for the first time at a conference and it goes poorly, don't worry about it. I guarantee all of those invited speakers, their first presentation, they didn't do amazing and that's totally okay I thought like I literally pointed out at one point when I was talking the lights went out and went back on for like half a second and what I decided to do did I steamroll through it no I went oh haha the lights went out did anyone else see that in the middle of my presentation why I think that's funny (laughs) to take attention away from myself (laughs) oh no I think that that's funny though You said you had another example? Yes. Okay. I thought of another example. This is niche to like being in school, but I think you can apply. I think you can apply it to any setting where a supervisor is observing you and you're having to demonstrate your skills. And it's weird to think about because now I'm like, that was dumb. Like, of course, like they don't expect you to know anything when they're first teaching you how to do something. But anytime we had to do like critiques on articles or like present on a topic, a specific topic for class, 
standing up there presenting, you know that the professor knows a million times more about the topic than you do. They know all the citations and you have to pretend like you're a subject matter expert on this topic, even though you know you're not and they know you're not. That's not the point. I just remember standing up there discussing my critique, feeling like I what I had to say wasn't valuable because I didn't know all the information. They don't care. Also, the whole point is you just having the, it goes back to like you contributing versus what you're actually saying. It just goes back to practicing, providing the critique and asking the questions and discussing the topic. And then as as time goes on, apparently there's an intruder. As time goes on, you're going to inquire some of those skills and Suze is going to knock the podcast mic over because she's tangled in the ropes. One moment, please. Saved. (laughs) So yeah, main takeaways here, if you're facing imposter syndrome, you're not alone. It's prevalent with women. It's prevalent with people of color. It's prevalent in the LGBT community. And something I want you to remind yourself of is it's because we're in a system that was never created or set up for us. So while we have talked about some ways that we mitigate imposter syndrome, sometimes that we've felt it. I want you to keep in mind that a lot of this is just rooted in systemic biases and differences. If you are facing it, make sure that you're talking to someone about it, having that system of support to celebrate your successes, celebrate your failures, look at how you can continue to improve and what you can do going forward. Spending time on what has occurred is only going to be helpful in terms of how we can further shape our behavior. There is no point in beating yourself up, shaming yourself, feeling down about something that you've done, because the whole point of life is to live, to learn, and to grow. So with this, Mary, what is your hydration for this week? What have you been doing to refill your cup? I'm really excited about how I've been staying hydrated this week because it worked. And when you try something and you're like, this might not work, it worked. And I'm so proud. So there are days as I'm working from home, I'm really enjoying my work from home life because honestly, I'm scared that I'm going to, well, I hope I get a real job, but I'm scared that I'll never be home again. So I'm trying to really like take it for granted and be super grateful and just like be really excited about the fact that I can work from home a lot because I have two pup pups who I love more than life. But if I have back-to-back meetings or even just like two meetings, like not, I'm not in a lot of meetings, but if I have like two throughout the day that are relatively close to one another and I'm doing work all at my desk, it can be um, a little monotonous. It can feel a little isolating. It can feel a little um, just like not great to be sitting for so long. And so what I've been trying to do is pre-planning when I'm going to not be sitting at my desk. Um, so like spending time outside with my pups, I can like sit on a bench out there and there are some Zoom, me- Zoom meetings where it's totally acceptable to, you know, Zoom from outside on my phone. Um, but then also yesterday I had a few meetings and like one of them I didn't even take at my desk. I sat where I normally eat um, breakfast and that was really effective because I just really wanted to, um, and Jackie's talked about this before, contrive a writing space where, you know, there's, you access reinforcement by getting to the desk and engaging in those behaviors and making that a really potent space for contacting reinforcement. And sometimes meetings, you know, you don't get to contact that reinforcement because you're not tippy tapping away. You're listening. Maybe you're taking notes, but you're not writing. It's, you guys get me. 
So this week specifically, there were two instances, one where I sat away from my desk for some meetings. And that was really effective because when I came back to my desk, I engaged in writing behaviors and it felt less like abrasive. It felt a little bit easier to get into the flow. And then um, I tried having a few meetings outside or specifically sitting outside, letting my pups run around like an hour, 30 minutes before a meeting. And then once that meeting time started, I felt less dog mom guilt. And also I felt like I had just been sitting. I just came to sat, sit at my desk for the first time. And I hadn't been in meetings for the past, you know, hour or two. It's filling me up to the tippy tippy top. Also, it's so freaking cute. My Corgi doesn't love water, but she loves to play fetch. So I play fetch with her. We have a little Nerf gun that shoots out tiny little mini tennis balls. And then my black lab is obsessed with water not pools but like puddles and we have a tiny pool and I fill it up to the top and then she lays in the dirt and gets really gross and then before we go inside I say um get in get in I'm not gonna say what I say because it's like me talking in a dog people sounds but I'm like are you gonna get in the pool and she gets in the pool and she lays down and she little like fluts around and comes inside and then she gets zoomies and it's the biggest serotonin boost ever I love that for you Setting up your environment for success is always beneficial. Absolutely. How are you hydrating yourself this week? Professor Noto? So if you remember it all from last week, I shared that one of my hobbies is going out to the stream and collecting rocks. So this past week, it's been raining a bit on and off which is great for rock collection because when rain happens, it pushes water down from bigger spaces of water so bigger creeks into the creek and streams that I go to so this week I was able to go out and look for my rocks which is great for me because it's a nice little hobby it's great for my boy because he gets to play in the sand and the water and explore and this week I had some huge victories in terms of rocks so I'm going to share them with you I was able to find quartz which is very common where I am so there was clear Sorry, I have to interrupt. Can you save the last, the best one for last? Because it's just really exciting. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, thanks. For sure. So I found some quartz, which is very common for the area I'm in. I found clear quartz, smoky quartz, some rosy quartz. I was able to find some citrine, some tiger's eye. I think I might've found some agate, but I won't know until I tumble it. I found one piece of calcite. But the piece I'm so flippin' excited about, because it's hard to find, you don't find it in a lot of locations, it's not common to the location that I'm in, I found a chunk of obsidian. And I am just freaking thrilled about it. So obsidian is essentially volcanic glass. The way that it is created is from volcanoes. How many volcanoes are in America nowadays? We don't have too many. A lot of the times you'll be able to find it in like California or you'll see it at like specific archaeological sites you find mm-hmm. obsidian. Yeah. So me finding obsidian in a creek in South Carolina is not something that's likely to happen. Huge and win. The, the chunk is like a quarter of the size of my palm. Yeah. So it's not super big, but it's not like a little chip or a fleck. Like it is a, a full-blown rock of obsidian and you can see when you turn it on its side like some of the chafe marks where it's been broken up before and obsidian one is just really cool because it's really pretty it's black it's shiny it's rare because that volcano thing and then 
a little bit into um, some of my background. My On my mother's side, we do have indigenous lineage. And when I was in undergrad, I took a class in archaeology. So while I was there, my instructor taught me how to make arrowheads from obsidian using elk antlers. So I've made arrowheads before from obsidian, but it's never been obsidian that I have found. That is an so, amazing fun fact. Making arrowheads? Yes. Oh, yeah. I made my own arrowheads and I threw them in an atolotl, which is like an archaic tool that's kind of like a slingshot on a stick. And it allows it to spin in the air, which is how they would have done it back in the day. But I'm really excited for this chunk of obsidian. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to get an antler and make it into an arrowhead on my own. Or if I just want to keep it in its raw form, because it's the first one I found on my own, I know finding it is hard. So I might just keep it in its raw form to have that sentimental value. But yeah, that's my big, exciting self-hydration of this week. I'm really excited about it. I am wondering if I can request on behalf of the myself and anyone else who's listening, if you can post maybe some pics on the Insta. Yeah, if if you want to see my rocks, I'll show them to you. <laughs> I would, I would love to see them. That's yeah, really cool. And uh, recording obviously is a different day than when we release. So when you're hearing this podcast, my birthday will be two days after. So I'm hoping uh, as a little birthday, woohoo, that I'll have a rock tumbler. So I'll be able to post some raw versions, some tumbled versions of those rocks if anyone's interested in seeing what I find. And once again, too, like rock collecting, it's like a real life treasure hunt. Yeah. It's how I used to feel about geocaching. Yeah. Like you can find treasure in your adult life. So I just, I freaking love it. You got a cool rock, send it to me. <laughs> Incredible. I think we both had some... Um unique and exciting hydrations for this week i'm proud of us yeah i like it it's hard as an adult to keep finding things that you love that you enjoy that fill you up so actively engaging in those behaviors is a great skill and habit to have when you're in the education sector when you're in your work field making sure that you're taking time for you just for you to do what you want to do yeah. is so huge huge and that wraps up this week's episode thanks for tuning in remember to make waves collect data and as always behave yourself